In 2013, the Houston Astros were the worst team in baseball, by far. They were going nowhere fast, or so it seemed on the outside. On the inside, Ben Ryder, who's appropriately a writer for Sports Illustrated, was implanted inside the organization and soon realized they were attempting to do something never before seen in baseball. The more time Ryder spent with the team in the front office, the more he grew confident about their potential for success in the near future. Now that led to the now iconic Sports Illustrated cover article that came out in 2014, which predicted the team would win the World Series three years later in 2017. Famously, that prediction came true. But in the Astros' case, hindsight literally was 2020, and we now know that everything was not as it seemed. So I brought Ben on to talk about his seat in the house for the rise of success and fall from grace of the Astros, among other things. Enjoy episode 19, and be sure to stay for the preview of episode 20 afterwards. What made the Astro ball different than Moneyball in Oakland? It was a lot of things, you know, like I was kind of thinking about it as Moneyball 2.0. The, the theme of Moneyball was about the supremacy of data over humans, essentially, right? Like, y'all, you remember that scene, Jack, from the movie with Brad Pitt, where you got Brad Pitt on one side of the table representing the future. And on the other side of the table, you have, you know, the crotchety old scouts representing the past like talking about evaluating players based on uh you know the appearance of their girlfriends and stuff like that right like it was clear which one we were siding on siding with on here what really stood out to me about the astros program or about astroball was how they were folding back in human observation to their decision making processes they were kind of you know, figuring out how to best harness things that humans could process um, and combine them with data that was much more advanced and all-encompassing than anything Billy Bean had had around the turn of the millennium to get the best out of both man and machine and optimize every single decision that they could with the goal of scoring more runs, essentially, and winning more. Um, That kind of total dedication to all types of data whether it's performance data or even human data, I thought represented uh, a significant leap. And I obviously thought held a lot of promise even back in 2014 when you really weren't seeing it at all yet. So then we get to 2021. A lot has transpired after the 2017 championship, obviously the cheating scandal uh, that kind of develops into 2019 and then the beginning of the 2020 season you're still kind of engrossed with the team you've written about how they've established this culture based off of data based off of analyzing players in a completely different way and that comes a lot from their gm who really didn't have a baseball background so then you decide to make a podcast which i listened to that's called the edge uh, and I believe Podcast Review just rated it one of the top 10 podcasts uh, of all of 2020, which is fantastic. Congratulations. Um, but I was out on a golf course. I was just putting around and I was looking for some sports thing to listen to uh, to pass the time. Uh, and I just kind of stumbled upon it and it was fantastic. Uh, so then what kind of led you, because this is your first podcast podcast documentary that you've ever done 
what led you to saying, instead of writing about this, I'm going to try and do this in an auditory way. <laughs> well, I'll, I thought I was pretty much done with the Astros, actually. You know, like I'd written a little bit about them after 2017. Um, but, you know, I, I couldn't imagine doing another big project about this team after having written the book and written about them so much. And then the cheating scandal happened. And it hit me as hard, probably harder than anybody else, because, you know, I had spent so much time thinking about this team and reporting about this team and frankly, you know, presenting what they were doing to the public in a generally positive light. Right. And then it comes out that they're the center of arguably the biggest cheating scandal in a generation. Um, so I felt a genuine sense of responsibility, both personal and journalistic to go back in the story and explain how this had happened. Frankly, what I'd missed, what everybody had missed. Um, and a lot of people were encouraging me to do that as well. Some not in, you know, the nicest of ways. Uh, but no, it was really just, I, I knew I, I just had to go back and find out how this had happened and explain it. And I knew I was well positioned to do it as well because of all the contacts and sources and time I'd spent on the story. A lot of people were saying, oh, you should write another chapter to Astro Ball, you know, an epilogue, which I, I just didn't think would work because, you know, it, it, I felt like it had to be a standalone piece. Mm -hmm. um, people said you should write another book, which I didn't think I was going to do as well. So I was thinking about how am I going to do this? And I started thinking about doing a podcast and I happened to meet this guy named Leon Nafok, who uh, has made some of the best podcasts I've ever heard including, you know, the first two seasons of Slow Burn about Watergate and the Clinton impeachment. Leon's not a uh, sports guy at all. He knows very, very little about sports, but he knows a whole lot, first, about how to make really compelling narrative documentary podcasts, but second, about how to dive in and dissect scandals and controversies, you know, like Watergate, for instance. And there's a lot of shared DNA between Watergate and what the Astros did. And, you know, we, we both quickly realized that, you know, this partnership with his, his team and his company um, might be the way to go. And would also allow us to kind of, you know, do the story relatively quickly and get it out there in a compelling way. So kind of dived in, not, not exactly knowing what the process would be like, not knowing how incredibly all consuming it would be for almost the entirety of 2020. I spent most of the year you know, everybody obviously in 2020 is spending most of their time inside kind of cordoned off from the right. world. I spent a lot of the year in my closet uh, recording this podcast, trying to get good sound. Uh, but, you know, I think the result is what I'd hoped it would be as far as this, just looking at this from every possible angle and trying to answer this question of how this organization that, you know, from its beginning was devoted to finding every possible competitive edge it could, how the organization drove itself too far and went over the edge. And that was the big question that animated everything I was trying to do in this project. Do you, I mean, the irony to me of such a revolutionary and innovative approach to evaluating baseball teams, drafting baseball teams, that it comes down to banging a trash can uh, to win baseball games is it's just, it cannot escape me. What is interesting to me though, is you were so confident uh, that the Astros were doing the right thing, that 
you and your editors put it on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And that is a coveted position in sports media. And this isn't to say that the trash can scandal is the only reason that the Astros won baseball games. They have talented players and they continue to play well. They're five and one. They made the ALCS last year. Why is it that a team that was doing all the right things needed to resort to something just so elementary to get an advantage in baseball games? I mean, look, like there are certainly tragic elements to this story, Jack. Like people were actually hurt by this and you meet some of them in the podcast. But it's also just funny, man. You know, like this team, this team that's uh, that I positioned and I wasn't alone as, you know, the most technologically advanced sports organization in the history of the world cheated by banging a bat on a trash can. Like this was the center of their scheme. It's funny, right? In that way. But it also, I mean, the real question, as I said, it's like, why did they do this? You know? Like how much of their success hinged on this? What about the way that the organization was run meant that it was in this organization that this happened, right? Like what, how much of a connection was there to this kind of cutthroat, ruthless uh, dedication to finding an edge, no matter at what cost, how much did that account for the fact that they obviously went too far and cheated. And what does that tell us about all sorts of organizations, not just in baseball, who are similarly kind of cutting edge? Because the Astros are not the only cutting edge organization that have gone too far, or at least started off in what seemed to be a wholly positive way, and then kind of developed in a different direction at a certain point. So yeah, those are all the things that I was just really interested in. And those are the big questions that I wanted to address. When we look at the team today, there's only about six or seven players from that 2017 team that are still with the Astros. So when we're throwing trash cans onto the field and playing before he cheats, uh, (laughs) they're announcing the starting lineup, uh, who should we be kind of directing our anger towards? Because (laughs) because most, I feel bad for a lot of the guys on the Astros, uh, even Dusty Baker that weren't even there that are kind of taking the brunt of this punishment uh, from fans that really they had no part of. Yeah, I get, and I get the anger. And I think a lot of that anger was going to really come out last year. And then fans weren't in the stadiums last year. So it was kind of held over to this year and we're seeing it a little bit, but you're right. I mean, most of the players who participate in this aren't there, right? Like the manager is not there. He's the manager of the Detroit Tigers, AJ Hinch. The bench coach who was so centrally involved, Alex Cora is the manager of the Red Sox. Carlos Beltran's retired. You're really talking about a few guys, Carlos Correa, uh, Jose Altuve, who by many analyses really was like one of the guys who actually didn't really participate in this scheme, but is at the same time, almost like the poster boy for it. Um, You know, Yuli Gurriel, Alex Bregman, There's a few guys left, but on one level, it's almost like as long as you are part of the Astros, then you're going to suffer this. Um, But on the other level, you know, I really think that this is something that is going to be with these guys for the rest of their lives. You know, they're always going to have those world series rings. 
that was part of the ruling by the commissioner's office that the World Series rings would not be rescinded. Um, but they're also always going to have this taint. And whenever you think of these guys who are part of that team, at least a lot of baseball fans will, will think of this as well. I wonder why it is that Altuve, because like you said, from most accounts, he was not the one taking advantage of the trash can banging as much as other players were. Why he became the poster boy for this scandal, because uh, I mean, I feel like you would look it up in the dictionary and there would be a picture of Altuve banging his chest, <laughs> grounding the bases. So how did that kind of develop into Altuve is the main culprit or he's the face of the scandal? Is it just the fact that he was there the longest out of all the players? I think, I think it's a few things. One is that he was kind of always the face of the team in part because he's such a great player and in part because he's just so relatable to the average fan, whether you're an Astros fan or not. You know, the fact that the guy is five, five and became an MVP and played with such joy. He was like the guy that you were rooting for, even if you weren't, even if you didn't like the Astros at all. So when this incredibly dark side of the story emerged, like it was almost most disappointing, right. Or most kind of crushing that he was a part of it, even if technically, you know, yeah. I mean, it seems like he didn't use the trash can bangs a lot as much, if at all, as other people, but he was a team leader and he, like a lot of the team leaders certainly didn't stop it, you know? So he's not entirely um, free of guilt there. Two is without a doubt the fact that, you know, if the Astros are going to do this, you really can't put anything past them. So you've kind of lost any benefit of the doubt on that, including the buzzer thing, right? Altuve homering off Roldis Chapman in the ALCS and not wanting his jersey to be ripped off. Um, you know, suspicions that he was had a buzzer on his body, which is why he wasn't using the trash can thing. Of course, this would have been years later after the 2017 championship. I looked into this deeply, like nobody has any proof or even really thinks that the buzzer thing was real, you know, but you can't prove that it wasn't. And the Astros, because they did the trash can thing, have given you no reason to trust that it wasn't. So right. there's no way for L2V to prove that he didn't wear a buzzer. And look, maybe he did. I can't say with 100% certainty that he did. So I think that plays into it too. The fact that that video spread like wildfire and seemed to show something so viscerally and clearly, even though in actuality, I'm not sure what it actually showed. Right. So when we look back at uh, one of the best games in baseball history, game five of 2018 <laughs> World Series between the Dodgers and the Astros, what should we think of it in your eyes? How would you contextualize it today? Ooh, I mean, kind of goes back to my answer about Altuve, right? It's like, you just can't be sure of what you were seeing. That game was incredible back and forth, you know, extra innings. You know, in my podcast, I talked to Chase Utley, who was kind of like the veteran leader, or he was very certainly the veteran leader of the Dodgers. And he said, going into the World Series, not to spoil too, too much for your listeners who might want to listen, right. but like he started to hear whispers that the Astros were up to no good, that they were stealing signs somehow. And he spent hours in the video room, like looking at tape, trying to see what he could pick up. And this guy's a master of seeing everything there is to see on a baseball field. And he said he couldn't do it. Um, part of that, he admitted, was because he was watching the videos without sound. 
right? So, so he wouldn't have heard the audible cue that they were kind of teeing off on. But he said that during the World Series, he couldn't figure out either. And he was looking everywhere. He was like a detective from the bench, like looking in the outfield, looking in the bullpen, like looking here and there. He couldn't figure out either. But he had told the pitchers for the Dodgers um, in a gentle way because he didn't want to kind of get in their heads too much. But like, you know, we got to change our signs a lot against this team, like a lot, a lot, a lot. So, you know, how much impact did the Astros sign ceiling, if they were actually doing it to a significant degree, have on any of those outcomes of the World Series? I'm not sure. But again, it's like this is that series was so tight. Game five was so close. You know, seven game series. The first six games were all just just all time classics in a certain way that could like one key stolen sign have swung it mm-hmm. maybe and like that's one of the tragedies of the whole thing is that you can't go back and replay that like you'll just never know even though the astros were certainly good enough to have won that world series on their own merits we don't know if they actually would have and we don't know if the dodgers might be you know two-time recent world champions right now and that's the most tragic part of the story to me is that the astros were likely good enough to win on their own merits I was reading a lot of your articles. Sports Illustrated uh, does a great thing with SI.com that they post all their writers' uh, stories Mm -hmm. uh, that have either been posted online or have been digitized over the years. Uh, I don't know if this is something you identify with, but you're reporting on either scandals, recovery from scandals, is fantastic. It's some of my favorite (laughs) stuff that you write. Uh, What are you suggesting? <laughs> I I think you you might have a good career up on Capitol Hill. I don't know, but uh, but the one I read on Alex Rodriguez uh, a couple mm-hmm. ago was fantastic, uh, and he is kind of on the other end of this. I guess if this if you're traveling through a tunnel, which is a scandal tunnel, uh, the Astros are currently stuck in the middle of this tunnel. But A Rod has come out, and on the other side, he's in Fiji. Because, I mean, he is living in his best life, despite being, at one point, one of the most hated athletes in not just America, but the world, because of his attitude, the glove slapping, uh, fighting, uh, just kind of his enigmatic personality that no one could really get through to him. Now he's completely different. Steroids being a big one. Steroids (laughs) also be a big one. And so... You you were able to kind of spend a week with Alex Rodriguez. Yeah. I want to know just how you kind of understood. I mean, you wrote about this. It's a fantastic article. I'd recommend anybody check it out. But how you kind of understood the turnaround from your point of view, because it's truly remarkable how he's gone from hated to now beloved. Yeah, it is. And I guess you're right. I guess I do write about a lot of people who have been through scandal or been troubled. And I think a lot of the time, my motivation for that is that I think we like the public and not just sports fans, but in everything, we like to have like kind of simple top line understandings of things and then move on, you know, a very black and white worldview, bad guys and good guys. And, you know, with maybe a few exceptions, I don't think anybody is all bad or all good. So I think part of my job is to go back to these stories sometimes, or maybe with the Astros case, go into stories that are happening right now 
and really present them in all their shades of gray, you know, present a full picture. Uh, you know, empathy, I think, is an important quality for a journalist. And that's not necessarily sympathy, right? It's not feeling sorry for somebody. Empathy being getting inside their head and like understanding why they did what they did, how things happened to them, um, all of that. So, yeah, I do do that a lot. Um, I heard a story about Hideki Rabu as well. That was very much that because Hideki Rabu, the old Yankees pitcher, was kind of like a one-line summary, like a you know bust buffoon. And there was just a lot more to this guy than anybody knew. Kind of the same with A Rod, although A Rod's a little different because he's kind of you know I'm not looking to rehabilitate anybody, but he's kind of achieved his own rehabilitation, right? And he's kind of poured himself into that process with as much energy as he played really right this is like his second career is his own rehabilitation and in many ways at least you know as far as public perception of him it's gone better right like act two has gone better because it seemed like no matter how incredibly good he was on the baseball field nobody could ever like him right and now he's at minimum like polarizing you know like he's without a doubt a celebrity there's without a doubt a lot of people who will never love alex rodriguez but he's also like the face of or the voice of baseball in a certain way. You know, he's doing the postseason. He's doing Sunday night baseball. He's like an ambassador for the game, which just seemed like absolutely preposterous yes. like a decade ago when he was the supervillain of baseball, like Bud Selig's white whale, the guy that Bud Selig wanted to take down. So I really wanted to dive in and understand how exactly uh, he's accomplished this. And again, there's like a lot of a lot of ways and he's taken a lot of work on his behalf and a lot of spinning and help and, you know, apologizing, at least to a certain degree. But I was just fascinated by the way that he's accomplished what he has. A guy who seemed like he would be excommunicated for the rest of his life is now anything but. He refers to his old personality, the one that was so icy to the media and icy uh, to people that were trying to, I guess, were at least making an attempt to like him during his career uh, as as the robot. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you knew that before going into the story, but as somebody that's trying to write a feature story on a guy that is, you know, he's up there with 2007 Tiger Woods as being as icy as possible to reporters, mm-hmm. uh, and yet you're going in to write a feature story on him where you have to kind of unravel all the layers of the onion uh, to get to, I guess, the inner nature of Alex Rodriguez, something that really no one has understood until the last four years. Was your plan of attack a lot different until you realized that he was more open to talking to you? Um, Not really. I, I, I guess I would say, Jack, I wouldn't say that he was icy necessarily. I think there were like he was just completely inauthentic, right? Like he was constantly performing as a player in a way that people could immediately see through. The media could see through. Every time he was on TV, he would seem like a phony. I think that's what he was talking about. And that's what he understood about himself. So yeah, now he has obviously in his post-playing career as part of this public rehabilitation, committed himself to presenting a more authentic person. Now, like one of the things that you dive into is, is he now performing the role of being a more authentic person or is he actually a more authentic person? And you can kind of 
spin down and down and down trying to right. sort these things out. Or maybe, you know, sometimes happens with celebrities, the performance of the personality actually becomes what the personality is. You know, they kind of combine. Uh, it's kind of naughty, not thorny, I guess I should say. It's hard to, it's hard to figure out. Um, but he certainly has arrived aided by tools that he didn't have back when he was playing, you know, like social media and all this stuff. He certainly arrived at a place um, where if he's not universally beloved, he's at least very successful. He's followed and he is anything but the outcast that everybody would have predicted that he would have been uh, when he retired. At least from my standpoint, there is character of the athletes that are taken into account when you vote them into the hall of fame especially the baseball hall of fame when characters so much in question in the past 20 25 years do you think that rodriguez's reclamation in the public view gives him a better shot at the hall of fame and, and i'll also tack this on to the question uh you voted for barry bonds the record mm -hmm. speaks for itself do you think that Bonds could look at Rodriguez and try to follow the same path that's been laid out in terms of trying to get back into the graces of the public a little more? I don't think that Bonds has any appetite to do that or ability. Like I think he would have probably done it by now uh, if he wanted to. But yeah, I mean, I, I think I've had, I just had my second Hall of Fame vote. And I voted for Barry Bonds. I voted for Roger Clemens. I voted for Sammy Sosa. I voted for Manny Ramirez. I don't think you can tell the story of baseball, especially during the steroids era, without including those guys in the Hall of Fame, fully understanding their transgressions. You know, like Bud Selig is already in the Hall of Fame. The commissioner that oversaw this horrible steroids era and that didn't do anything about it until kind of his hand was forced by the public, in which case, at which time he did an about face, you know, perfectly happy to profit, even though, you know, they should have known, right? Like all the owners should have known what was going on. I'm sure they had some knowledge of it. Perfectly happy to profit through that magical summer of 98, through all of Barry Bonds' exploits, et cetera. So yes, I mean, I understand what these guys did, I still think that they should be in the Hall of Fame. And I imagine, I think Arid's on the ballot next year. And I imagine I'll vote for him. And I imagine I'll vote for David Ortiz as well. Ben, I close all my podcasts asking my guests three things I'd like to know. They're, okay. uh, they're not always tied to baseball. They're not always tied to the feature topic. Uh, but the first question, uh, we'll kind of, uh, I'll give you an idea of kind of it's more kind of basic getting to know you stuff, but <laughs> okay. I was looking for a better way to describe it, but I couldn't find it. Uh, <laughs> first, first question. Uh, what was, what is the best college drinking game? Um, definitely for me, beer pong. Um, Beirut version. I know some people play with paddles, mm, but uh, I like that. Just classic. You know, I think we did some beer dye back in the day as well, but uh, I was always more of a pong guy. Have you ever played baseball? 
I don't know. I had just recently learned baseball. It's a fantastic drinking game. You can put nine players on each side of the table and it's played just like baseball. Put four cups in a line, single, double, triple, home run, play nine innings. Sounds like a lot of lot to keep track of, depending on how late in the night it is. But, uh... it, it, it is, but yet somehow it, it is one of the more engaging drinking games that I've played. Uh, <laughs> I'll have to look it up. Maybe, get it a shot. maybe just because I've grown up around the sport. Uh, okay. The second question. Uh, what was the last book you read? Um, what was the last book I read? Well, you know... Right now, I'm reading The Remains of the Day by Kazuo Ishiguro. Simply fantastic novel. Um, you know, I'm trying to remember what the last book I read was before this one. Um, oh, I know. It was The Only Rule Is It Has to Work right, which is happens to be a baseball book, although I don't read baseball books solely or even uh, overly frequently, but it's by Ben Lindbergh and Sam Miller. And it's about when these two guys who both work for baseball prospectus got the opportunity to be the general managers of an independent team out in uh, California and tried to like put in extremely progressive analytical tactics and stuff like that and uh, see if they worked. Um, and obviously, you know, they're into more trouble doing this than they might've expected. And it's a great read, especially for people that are into baseball. Uh, it's one I'd highly recommend. I will, I have a subscription to audible, so that'll be my next, next credit. Uh, okay. Last one. Uh, we met through, uh, one of my classes that I take at Arizona state, uh, professors, John Walters, mm -hmm. uh, who worked at sports illustrated with you. So I want to hear the best story of john walters that you have oh boy the best john you know john used to sit well he had an office at the time i did i was in a cubicle because this was <laughs> when i first got to sports illustrated right uh john was there Whew. you know i feel bad about i don't know so we would do this yearly trip to the belmont stakes Okay, out in Long Island, organized by another colleague of ours named uh, named Adam Duerson. And John would come, but I don't want to implicate him in this activity. So I'm going to say that I, I'm not sure if you participate in this or not. But like every year, there would be these like increasingly complicated ways that we would figure out to like sneak beer into the Belmont Stakes because it was so expensive inside. Like one year, everybody got these folding chairs with secret compartments because the security wasn't so tight. Another year involved like drilling holes in the bottom of apple juice bottles and then draining the apple juice and filling it with beer and then resealing them so that like the seals on the top would still be solid if security checked on those. Again, I'm not implicating John. I don't even know if he participated in this. Probably not. But uh, he was he was there. That's tremendous. <laughs> oh, I love that story. It's still it's still great to me that those kinds of things even go on at Sports Illustrated. <laughs> it was not an official Sports Illustrated. Yeah, trip. No, it, it was involving. 
It was involving Sports Illustrated people. I'm not, yeah, I, the way I phrased that sounded like I was implicating Sports Illustrated. <laughs> oh, whatever. Implicate but, them if you want. Yeah, yeah. You, you're listening. <laughs> I don't care. All right, Ben, uh, this has been great. I appreciate you coming on. Uh, and I'd certainly love to have you back on in the future to talk more. Thanks, man. Really appreciate it. Thanks for asking. Thanks for listening to that episode of the Trail Mix Podcast. I really hope you enjoyed it. And now, as promised, a preview of episode 20, part two with Spencer Gustafson. Still, when the cameras are on... You gotta show out. Do you think that if you were in a movie about your life, that you could act... Terrible. You could act that well, Even if you were acting as yourself. I would be terrible. Yeah. I would look at the camera like a like a three-year-old. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And they're like, don't look at the camera. No, but they do. Right. That would be me. Yeah. Because I'd be trying to peek and see <laughs> if they were liking my performance <laughs> instead of focus. And I wouldn't remember my line. Like, you, there are lines and yeah. lines of fucking things you got to remember. Yeah. And movements and emotion in the scene. And I know you go all, through all that on the day and they kind of walk you through it. Yeah. But you still got to... Like you said, when the cameras are fucking on, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. And you know what? He made a great goddamn movie. He did.